So today, Pay Me, Sight Me has returned. We have taken a very long, unexpected hiatus. Kofi's in grad school again. I'm graduated <laughs> out of grad school and about to move again. And today is a very special day. We have a guest on who I have been very, very longing to have on the show. Um, and I have so much respect and have learned so much from this person, and I know that our listeners will as well. So I'm going to allow you a chance to introduce yourself, Michelle. Sure. My name is Michelle Lanier. I am an Afro-Carolina folklorist. Um, I am a filmmaker. I'm also a museum professional. Um, I'm an author, and I am the daughter of Margaret Odell Caution McCullers, who is the daughter of Anne Grace Richardson Caution. Um, I spent much of my formative um, childhood years in South Carolina, um, being raised in Hilton Head, South Carolina, in Gullah community, and many of my years, most of my years in the Midlands, Columbia, South Carolina, uh, where I still have relatives, and uh, deep ancestral roots um, throughout North Carolina. Um, I'm a mother to one child and partner. Um, I also do hip hop from time to time. Um, I am the director of 25 museum spaces um, as a part of a team that stewards the history and memory of North Carolina uh, called the Division of State Historic Sites and Properties. Uh, adjunct professor at Duke University for 22 years. I've been teaching there at the Center for Documentary Studies. And so all of this lives in my calling um, as a folklorist, uh, the practice of, um, you know, academically and in the public forums, um, amplifying and contending with and dancing with cultural expression that's rooted in community. Um, and that, for me, is particularly important um, in North Carolina, as I'm a keeper of memory here, but also in the larger spaces that come together to create the Afro-Carolina diasporas. That's me. Thank you so much, Michelle, again, for joining us. And I'm really, really excited to have this conversation with you today. So um, I think starting off, I want to talk a little bit about, are you familiar with the term multi-hyphenate? Yes, I am. Yeah, I recently learned about it. I don't know if it's a newer term, but um, I, you are like the epitome of a multi-hyphenate. So I, I wanted to start this interview off with um, learning more about how you came to be in all of these spaces and your academic and creative work. So um, Kofi and I are also people who have like a myriad of interests and it, one of, uh, it kind of took the form in this podcast. Um, so how have you learned to balance your creative and academic pursuits? And um, yeah, if you could share a little bit more about the, the beginnings of you knowing that she wanted to do multiple different, different uh, wear different hats. And would you, uh, 
describe yourself? Have you always been a documentarian throughout your life? Sure. So what's interesting for me, first of all, I'm driving along, so you might hear the buzz of an engine. I'm on my journey as we're talking about my journey. Um, So for me, what's really powerful around the field, you know, what for me, what's really powerful about the field of folklore is it is a um, multidisciplinary field. It's an interdisciplinary field. And so everything that I do, whether I'm teaching, whether I'm curating, whether I am um, advising on film or creating um, uh, a an intervention, you know, that's site-based, whether I'm producing an installation piece, which I, I did recently at ArtSpace called Easting the Light, or writing a children's book, or participating in the creation of an album, all of it for me lives within the basket of folk, being a folklorist. So in in some ways I am, you know, polyhyphenate or multi-hyphenate, but the, the crux of who I am as a folklorist um, I, I have an integrated self. I have a, a root system. Um, and the different ways that I give expression to my calling as a folklorist um, is led for me by um, a, a posture of deference to the sacredness of the work. So I believe in, in discernment and calling um, in my master's thesis from... Um, UNC Chapel Hill's folklore program um, dealt with funerary traditions in Gullah community, and I had to develop a methodology for myself called spirit-centered ethnography. And so one of the methods of spirit-centered ethnography is this um, intentionality around discernment and really sitting in an explicitly spiritual um, way, acknowledging that prayer meditation, discernment can lead um, me, should lead me for in my worldview it should lead me in terms of the decisions I make, the relationships I build. Um, I am following callings Um, and so the simple answer is that as a folklorist I have a multitude of expression opportunities that um, come out of that um, come out of that vocation and how I make those decisions and how I lean in is as someone who is deeply spiritual. Um, I have a deep and profound um, reverence for my ancestors. I am someone who um, is also um, inspired by my um, my identity as a, a Christ follower in kind of the Episcopal tradition. And I also am spiritually inspired by the land that holds me and the water that, you know, I'm witness to, the plants, the flora, the fauna, all of that I feel a, a kind of responsibility to. Um, and whether the ancestors are my own or someone else's, when I'm walking through space and when I'm putting my foot on soil, I, I realize that I am in relation with the memories of that of that place. So that's my ethos. Um, how did I find my way into this work? Uh, I, you know, I have 
a few different Genesis stories for my path. Um, one is my grandmother's kitchen table. I remember sitting at the kitchen table of Anne Grace uh, Richardson Caution, um, my grandmother's home that I remember. She had several homes. She was a military wife, and so they moved around quite a bit. But by the time I was born, um, they had settled in Columbia, South Carolina in a black <clears throat> in a black neighborhood called Waverly that's um, flanked by two HBCUs, uh, Benedict and Allen. And my grandmother would tell us stories about our ancestors. And she would do it, I felt, in a very deliberate way because I think she had this strong desire um, to know, for us to know, you know, who we, who we are, um, particularly in a setting like Columbia, South Carolina, that's the capital of a state that, depending on the teachers you had in social studies, there would be this sense of pride that it's, you know, the first to secede um, as a part of the Confederacy during the American Civil War. And so for, for us, Grandma Ann, um, her narratives around um, civil rights and resistance and entrepreneurship and creativity and family and beauty and splendor and socioeconomic complexity and um, and and yeah, pain too. Um, but come, you know, people who survived up and out of pain. Um, and racial um, subjugation and people who resisted racial subjugation. Those stories held us really strong, um, held us to a standard of um, selfhood, self-determination. She made sure that we knew that we came from a people in a tradition that required of us um a profound sense of self-regard and she loved being black and she wanted us to love being black and she was also very communal and um, creative and loved adornments she loved to adorn herself with fine things so I think about Grandma Ann's house, her kitchen table, um, sleeping, you know, at the foot of her bed on, on pallets as cousins. And that's one of the places where I could say that the seeds were planted for the work of being a folklorist. Certainly there was also, there were books that I read like um, Mama Day and The Color Purple, um, and the, the women, women of Brewster Place, and you know that really um, helped me to understand the power of story, um, of narrative. Um, I, I also was taken as a child to museums and to cultural events where there would be handmade items, kind of vernacular art forms, you know, sweetgrass baskets, and my family deeply um we're, my, my family had this commitment to being you know being passionate about black expression 
music and material culture. Um, some of, some of the most important uh, contributors to uh, folklore as a, a field were people like my aunt Berta Mae Grotner, culinary you know anthropologist, um, and my cultural godfather Emery Campbell, who helped to um, establish many things, but you know a, a sense of Gullah pride and Geechee pride uh, in South Carolina. So one other Genesis story that I'll share that I've shared many times is being nine years old with my mother living on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, and visiting Defusky Island and hearing about the people across the sea who are related to us. And that was my first um, notion of diaspora and the Middle Passage and the transatlantic slave trade. Um and I remember feeling very moved by that. And I remember thinking to myself, I need to pay attention. Perhaps there's something that one day I will be able to do to address some of the concerns that were being brought up around disconnect from burial grounds, um, shaming of language traditions. I just remember thinking at nine, I need to pay attention. I feel this is important. I want to be a part of whatever this is. And I remember looking across the water and wondering if someone related to me was looking back. And so then at Spelman College, where I got my undergraduate degree, and I was majoring in English literature and focusing a lot on African-American women's literature, I learned about the field of folklore, you know, thinking about Laura Neal Hurston, and then later I would learn about Anna Julia Cooper, these um, black foremothers of folklore. Um, I learned about UNC Chapel Hill having a folklore program, a master's degree, a terminal master's, and I went, and I returned to the land of my ancestors in North Carolina, and the rest is history. Thank you so much for sharing those Genesis stories. And I love how rooted in community each of them were. Uh, and it speaks volumes to the work that you're doing currently. Um, I think this is a really good segue for a question that I had uh, written down, um, just as a little background to this question. So in, in a Pay Me, Cite Me episode last summer, um, Kofi brought up a quote from Michael B. Jordan, where he said something along the lines of, uh, I think he was writing a, a new film, um, and he, I think he said something along the lines of, like, African-American people don't have a culture to draw from. And we went on a long rant dissecting that statement in the episode. And I also, I feel like this is a common refrain, and sometimes I see it um, in discussion routinely happening on Black Twitter and I feel like your work is in direct opposition to that statement. So what do you think accounts for Black people across the diaspora to, like, sometimes disregarding African-American culture and history? I think it is entirely about what you had access to in your own homes and in your own communities and in your own schools and in your own places of worship. Um, you know, I I can't imagine... I cannot imagine uh, living a life where I 
didn't understand or have an intimate connection to the folk culture, um, the, the fairy tales, if you will, the um, the material culture. I mean, so let me just be clear, though. When we say folklore, some people are like, oh, you're, that means you're a storyteller. Um, it's not quite that. I want to just demystify folklore for a second. So the study of folklore is about the expression of culture out of a community. So that community could be, you know, business owners on Black Wall Street. It could be skateboarders. It could be photographers. It could be people who've lived for thousands of years in, in terms of generationally on a piece of land. It could be the people who live in a housing project. It, it, folklore is nimble in that way. And it can, it's food ways, it's music, it's spiritual beliefs, it's burial traditions. It's um, how do people set up, you know, space and build home, you know, proxemics, vernacular architecture, clothing, <clears throat> clothing styles, hairstyles, um, you know, what do you do when a baby's first born? What do you do when someone passes away? All of that is folklore. It is broad and vast. It's about cultural expression. So um, I can't imagine a time when I didn't really have access to that. Um, but this is what can happen when, if if someone is from a family that migrated away from your elders away from generations of um, you know of your people and you migrated away maybe because you wanted to you had a, a dream that was calling and beckoning in a distant land or maybe because you had to you were forced to maybe you were run off or maybe there was famine maybe there was war maybe there was violence Maybe you were reuniting with loved ones. That's often what causes people to migrate. But, you know, some some communities are deeply determined to hold on to their folkloric expressions and will do everything from having, you know, festivals to um, making sure that, you know, when you come together for gatherings, that the attire you have and the food that you eat all represents your notions of home. One of the um, diabolical tricks of white supremacy is convincing black people around the globe that some of our um, oldest traditions are symbols or signals for inferiority. Um, So tone of voice, or body language, or certain certain dance traditions, certain hairstyles, certain wrap you know wrapping of the head with cloth, um, certain foods, chicken, you know, a melon, um, become these signifiers of inferiority, these stereotypes that are weaponized against us. And so, in some cases, if you were the child, grandchild, or great grandchild of a community. Um, of a you know of a family that um, decided to distance themselves from some of those markers, perhaps feeling safer with you know assimilation, um, then it can it can be hard to recognize 
um, some of those folklore traditions. And then I also want to talk about the fact that folklore is dynamic. So, yeah, you know, if you migrated to the Bronx and you were a part of the community that birthed hip hop, then you're birthing new new folk, new folkloric expressions. Um, I think that we don't necessarily always have the language to understand what what's right in front of our our noses. So, you know, an HBCU drumline band is a, a folk expression. Um, Hip hop is folk expression. Funk music is folk expression. There are some people who would who would probably disagree with me, but you know, based on my definition of who the folk are and how we tell our stories of, of what we are and and how we want to be um, and what we've been, then I would say all of those are folkloric expressions. Um, if if what he was referencing is some of the oldest folklore expressions around. Um, you know, music and stories and, you know, John Henry and um, Mommy Water and um, uh, the people who could fly. Yeah, we, we, are, we are rich in older and new and forthcoming folkloric expression. I just think that it's a sign that he wasn't exposed to it. He didn't know. Many people don't know. Um, that's part of my calling is to amplify and illuminate, to render visible and audible and legible um, the texture of who we are and who we might become. Um, Kofi, did you have something? I just want to give space if you... Uh, not yet, not yet, but I'll definitely Okay chime. Yeah, thank you for that, Michelle That was so perfectly put um, Yeah, and I I Have so much to ask you around <laughs> I love what you said of like It depends who the folk are And, you know This is uh, one of the many reasons I'm so excited to be in conversation with you today be- Especially me having recently completed a master's program and often feeling, um, of course, that my values don't align with this institution and uh, what they're wanting to, like, quote-unquote, formally train me into this discipline that I kind of um, readjusted that formal training to fit my values. And, you know, I... I want to learn more about how you navigated that and currently are navigating that as well. You know, I I feel like it's a constant thing that we have to push up against. Um, And I I think to further explain what I'm talking about, I'm going to read a brief uh, excerpt from your um, incredible essay uh, titled Rooted, Black Women, Southern Memory, and Womanist Cartographies, uh, published by Southern Cultures Magazine in 2020. Um, So the quote begins, uh, where is the GIS map that will lead me to the janitor's closet where warm gingerbread was left for a weeping brown girl, sent by her people to integrate a university? Who were the groundskeepers and housekeepers and cafeteria cooks? And also Brown, who whispered the weather forecasts of her heart as her feet took into 
classrooms cloudy and thunderstorms and white supremacy. Um, this entire essay is so incredibly important and I'm going to continue to revisit it and I'm going to link it for our listeners as well. So, yeah, going back to how I was um, starting this question, how did you learn to unlearn, like I said, these quote-unquote formal trainings that are often rooted in colonialism of these disciplines um, that taught everyone to render those who have been historically silenced invisible? How did you teach yourself to go back and delve deeper into those histories that have been disregarded? especially in institutional settings. I never had to unlearn it. Um, I was taught by my first teachers, my father, my mother, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my grandmother, to always um, value fullness of, of a community. And to always think about who's at the margin and 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 have a uh, an intentionality around um, where where your mind traveled and where your mind's eye traveled uh, and that the excluded that is a an ethic of my family. Really long uh, tradition, and so the ethic of my family, how we um, thought about community, how we navigated community, crossed over into our intellectual um, conversations, the, our reading choices, and then so you know further, uh, Feldman was also an uh, a deepening of that um, of that kind of. Um, epistemological approach of you know how do you take the tools of, of theory and look for liberatory um, methods and praxis and and you know look look for tools that can be freeing so that was a part of the pedagogy I was seeped in at, in my home um, in at Spelman and then at UNC Chapel Hill, the folklore program, um, there was a deep commitment to um, having a, you know, a positionality of, of humility in the presence of um, often disregarded, marginalized, or condescended to um, vernacular knowledge bearers. Um, there was a strong emphasis on reciprocity uh, seeding power, uh, thinking deeply about issues of representation and power when it comes to the work we do. I chose my intellectual path from, you know, from going to Spelman and going to the folklore program at UNC and even be going back to the geography program now at UNC for my doctorate. I chose that path based on um, my values that I had that, that had been instilled in me. Um, so there, there never was an unlearning. Um, I, I, I've been very stubborn. 
<laughs> and you have to be like <laughs> to hold on to your values because I feel like I'm I'm so glad that you were blessed to be in spaces uh, where there didn't have to be as much of a pushback. Um, however, I feel <laughs> I feel like my recent experience wasn't that, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, you you learn through the fights that you have to have. <laughs> Definitely, I you know I chose I chose I chose uh, to you know. I chose paths that mirrored um, my values, and if anything, I feel like I've been pushed to go deeper and farther um, mm-hmm. into a um, a journey of being, you know, reciprocal, of being, um, you know, humble, of knowing when my voice was unnecessary. Um, but also uh, into being to, into self-disclosing, you know, mm. who am I in this work and understanding that my own story is also of worth and being autoethnographic is also has value, particularly as we think about the erasure of black women's voices. Um, so, you know, sometimes I've had colleagues who think, oh, boy, here she here she goes talking about herself again. Well, you know, my mother died before the Internet was born. And so it feels really important for me that I say Margaret, Odell, Caution, McCullers over and over again every time I get a mic. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's important to me that people know my mother. Um, it's important for me that people, um, that I make time to listen to black women um, of the South as a an act of... Um, of rethinking what do you know what do we know and name about this this land and the diasporas of this land um so i've i have been very fortunate to have professors and colleagues who have not tried to you know get me to move backwards from that kind of liberatory work, what Courtney Reed Eaton would call a liberatory praxis or methodology. I don't have have much experience with that. I do have people who probably don't necessarily understand why I do what I do or sometimes feel that it's maybe um, amplifying the, the subjective a bit much. Um, and so I, you know, I get to have conversations with them about why um, I move in the ways that I move. I was very nervous to write my master's thesis from a perspective of a, a outing myself as someone who was very spiritual and saw the work as sacred, um, because I think there's this notion that in the academy one should be agnostic at most, um, but you certainly shouldn't disclose um, having a spiritual um intellectual framing uh, unless you're in school you know for seminary um and so that was I was nervous I was nervous about that but I was pleasantly surprised by how much support I received and it was tough to write uh rooted was very tough to write going um you know was very tough to write um, because my, my master's thesis because it was vulnerable. Um, I, I felt raw 
in the and I I love um, the, the work of Ruth Behar, um, vulnerable observer, where she talks about you know the heart and in our experiences and vulnerability as being a part of, of our intellectual journey as a tool that can be used for understanding things intellectually. And I use that in my pedagogical approach as well. I say, you know, the heart is also an intellectual tool. Um, it helps us to know what we're bringing into an, in, into an exchange uh, and into an inquiry. And certainly we can set some things aside to make more room to hear and learn and read and listen. But knowing what lens you're seeing through um, is important. Yeah, thank you, um, Michelle, for sharing all that. Um, you actually touched on something that I was going to end up circling back to, which is, you know, when you started with your bio, you, you listed off a couple different rel relatives, and that stuck out to me. One of the first times I actually heard anybody do that um, was at North Star in Durham. Um, I believe their name is Monet Marshall. Yeah. And, and, you know, a couple times over, like, the course of a couple days, you know, they would be like, I am, you know, <laughs> the child of, you know, who their parents are. And I was like, oh, interesting. And I thought of it through the framework of being a folklorist, right? Like, or being like a griot of just like, I'm giving continuous life and I'm like continuously honoring um, my family and my lineage. Because as someone who like doesn't, necessarily remember every person in their family um and you know my family we're not a family of storytellers right so we're not like maybe in different ways but at least not through storytelling and folklore are we given like the obvious like here's what your granddad was like or you know here's what your grandma was like or your aunt or whatever and so then I was also thinking about like how your work offers something to, to people who didn't get that, right? Because I don't think everybody can be like, you know, I am the, you know, whatever, whatever, whoever. Um, but I see I see use and beauty in, in the work that you do, and especially something as simple as, like, that practice, you know, of showing that and being like, um, you know, I am the child of, of my parents. Um, yeah, so I appreciated that. I also just like wanted that's my interpretation right so like I see it as being useful to community in that way but I was curious if you could kind of like you spoke to it a lot but like if you could just sort of like circle back to like the uses of like um your practice to folks who aren't inside of the academy I think a lot about heavy um by Kiese Lehman every time that I step in like any academic institution and there's a character in there named Malachi Hunter. And, you know, Kiese Lehman is at a point where he's getting his writing off. And Malachi Hunter asks, you know, what is your work going to do? What is your writing going to do for, you know, black folks in Mississippi who can't eat your writing? You know what I mean? Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to that question. Absolutely. Um, I just wanted... I want to pull at some of the threads of your your contextual setup for the question. So I want to just honor the tradition of the griot 
you know, that RIOs are multi-generational, you know, conveyors of communal knowledge um, out of the West African tradition. Um, I love that tradition. It's a beautiful tradition. I am not a griot. Um, as a folklorist, I'm looking at these kind of prismatic, um, I'm helping all of us to see the world through a kaleidoscope. So I'm helping all of us to say, what do we eat? Where do we sleep? What do we put on our bodies? What songs carry us through? What do we believe happens to the soul before birth and after death? I'm looking at the universes of us as Afro-Carolina people. That's what it means for me to be a folklorist. Um, I do not carry the um, the moniker of I am a, of being a, a storyteller. Um, I do think that I tell stories, but I think there's a distinction between telling stories and being a storyteller. Because there's a, there are, there's a community of people around the globe who have a sacred calling to tell stories and use stories to provoke, to remember, to heal, to scare us if, if that's necessary, um, love stories. And so I am not a storyteller. I'm a folklorist. And so I'm, I'm about, you know, holding up the prism and looking through and inviting other people to look through and see these worlds um, across time and space. Um, I call my mother's name and sometimes my father's name and my grandmother's name because of my own spiritual commitment to ancestry and acknowledging that I don't have the power to speak without them having the power to birth me. Um, so it is an extension of my own personal spiritual practice. Um, I also, my mother died at the age of 35. And so it's really important for me to call out her name so that she continues to know that I, 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 I honor her. I call out my grandmother's name a lot, my mother's mother, because I believe she taught me a lot of what I know and understand to be true about how I function in the world as a folklorist. Um, and I think there's something really powerful about calling out the names of black Southern women um, and just saying, saying our names beyond the tradition of the martyred and murdered um, is really important to me. Uh, Catherine McKittrick talks about livingness, um, black livingness. You know, the, the, you know, there we talk about Afro pessimism and the hauntology of being black. I'm really interested in talking about black life, um, and we talk about black lives. But I want to, yes, I want to say yes, and I want to say. And what is black life? And understanding that black life is complicated and terrifying and beautiful and funky and complex and beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And so I'm I'm just the rest of my life I am passionate about that. I also there are times, many times in my life where I set aside that desire to contend with black life 
and focus on Celtic life and German life and Lumbee life and, you know, Halawasa Pony life because part of my work is as a keeper of memory for the state of North Carolina. So I can, I can get down with it, you know, any community and honor and center and amplify and have curiosity and deference and respect and joy around any community expressions. Um, I get a great delight. Um, I get great delight out of telling the truth about the truths, the multiple, you know, truths about a, a person or a place or an event. So that that's very exciting for me that I get to work with my colleagues at historic sites because we we have some amazing stories, and you know, our ecosystems of witness are um, co-creators of those stories: the longleaf pine and the you know the, the water, the bath the bathymetry. The, the, the mapping of water across North Carolina, the riverine land, like all of that is a part of the story. So how do I feed my people? Um, a, guiding, a guiding star for me in my work is the, the twin concepts of healing and wholeness. Um, I believe that in bearing witness to the stories of ourselves, our communities, and the lands that hold our feet, there is a um, inherent possibility of healing and wholeness. Um, even if you are already healed, you can become you know, more whole through the witness of, of the, the memories of a place and then even the futurities of a place can expand your sense of self. Um, I've written some things that I've heard people say they needed. It was the kind of medicine for them. They needed to um, be affirmed or mirrored. Um, they needed to see that there was a, a different kind of syntax, a different kind of choreography of language that they could take up. So some people have felt freed by my words. I recently wrote a piece that's going to come out soon about reproductive justice that um, I sought some consent in the telling, in the writing of it, I sought consent from a few relatives to just ensure that I wasn't doing harm and telling a pretty intense story that has to do with our family. And I found out that one of the matriarchs who I reached out to, I had assumed she knew this story. I had assumed she knew this memory, and she did not. And she gave me the blessing to go forward with it. It was about my mother, who's an ancestor, but this was her oldest sister. They were all, like, less than a year apart. I thought my aunt knew this story, and she didn't. And it was a healing opportunity, you know, for for her and for us, and, and a connection. We grew closer through the sharing of that memory. So I, and you know, the work that I've done in film on um, Mossville and Great Trees Fall, which is a story of resistance to environmental racism in southwest Louisiana, um, policies, I think, have been impacted by that film. Some people have, uh, I believe, 
taken up the banner of fighting against environmental racism, partially inspired by some aspects of the film. And there's some people who appear in the film who actually do receive funds based on sales from the film. And so some literal income in addition to spiritual income. So yeah, everything that I do is predicated on me asking the question, are we moving the needle for someone towards healing and wholeness? Thank you for that, Michelle. I definitely have felt uh, healed and your work has contributed to my wholeness as well. And part of the Again, the reason I'm so excited to have the opportunity to be in conversation with you today. Um, in closing, I want to briefly, I definitely want to be respectful of your time, um, but I just wanted to briefly touch on your forthcoming book, African American Music Trails of Eastern North Carolina. Uh, I would love to know more about the research process for this book and um, if it involves visiting a lot of Eastern North Carolina towns and conducting oral histories. And, yeah, if you could just share a little bit more about the book in general. Yeah, so I will say that um, there's, you know, a a um, a new birth of that work and that, that book, well, I'll just say this, the African American Music Trail of Eastern North Carolina is a larger um, kind of multi-pronged project and it sits under the auspices of the African American Heritage Commission, the North Carolina African American Heritage Commission, which is led by um, Angela, I was going to say Michelle, Angela Michelle Thorpe. (laughs) Angela Thorpe um, is the director of the North Carolina African American Heritage Commission. And so that project uh, was born in the uh, North Carolina Arts Council and is officially now under the leadership of the North Carolina African American Heritage Commission, which also leads um, a multitude of really amazing transformative projects like Africa the Carolina and the Civil Rights Trail Project, the Green Book Project, huge, huge work coming out of um, that team. I'm very proud to have been the inaugural executive director, um, founding executive director of the North Carolina African American Heritage Commission. But I take no credit for this big work that's happening right now. They are, um, they are shifting the world, and the and the world is watching. Um, so the original project um, was started by two fellow folklorists, um, Beverly Patterson and Sarah Bryan, um, who went out and did. Uh, a lot of oral history interviews and then brought in even more folklorists to do even more oral history, oral history interviews, people like Barbara Lau. I can't even name all of the oral, uh, oral historians and folklorists who were part of the original research project to kind of get a sense of um, the uh, rich, deep, old, impactful musical traditions of Eastern North Carolina, uh, African Americans in, in that part of the state. Uh, and so then I came on, um, I'm going to say that must have been 2012, 
I came on and I helped with uh, the, some of the editorial aspects of that text. It's distributed by UNC Press. Um, I know Wayne Martin, who um, used to be over the folklore program years ago, was involved. So there was a huge team effort. Um, amazing artists like Bill Myers of the Monitors, um, Maceo Parker, who... Um, Everybody should know Maceo Parker, but certainly when you hear James Brown saying Maceo, they're talking about Maceo Parker. Maceo Parker performed not just with James Brown, but with Prince and so many other countless musicians. Um, people like F.C. Barnes, who's famous for I'm Coming Up on the Rough Side of the Mountain. Um, you know, Charlotte Ammons is referenced, um, coming out of Eastern North Carolina as well. So we all came together and we worked on finalizing that text, really kind of uh, growing an existing exhibit that had already um, been created with the photography of um, Titus um, Brooks Higgins, um, amazing documentary photographer, based in Durham. So we came together and we created the text, the exhibit. Um, We realized that we needed to flesh out some aspects of the work um, came up we came up with this uh, yardstick of like how we were thinking about particularly the online the digital life of the work to make sure that it had gender diversity and generational diversity and genre diversity and geographic diversity because you know some people think oh well it's black music of this region that's you know that's all you need but there were there are hip hop artists and and blues singers and gospel and R&B and different kinds of gospel all coming out of that region. This is a region that um, would have seen, you know, Little Eva of Locomotion and all and the person who wrote the music for I Feel Good, Matt Jones. So, like, huge music giants coming out of this region. I, I also talk about tobacco funk um, when I think about this work because you had these tobacco, you know, tobacco auction houses, barns that were being, they weren't barns, they were huge auction houses that when auction season wasn't happening, they'd be cleared out and filled with, with music. Cab Calloway, Ella Fitzgerald, um, Louis Armstrong, on that Chitlin circuit would come through places like Kinston, North Carolina, and they would perform, James Brown later, they would perform in these tobacco auction warehouses. And um, so the impact of this region on the world is huge, and vice versa. The world also came to, to Kinston and, and these um, these eastern North Carolina counties. So... Um, the book is out. It's uh, been out for a little while. It's distributed by UNC Press. And really, really, I just want to commend the work of the North Carolina African American Heritage Commission and supporting this kind of work, along with um, work like the children's book that I, I authored called My NC from A to Z. Um, they are one of the, the publishers of that text. And also, they help to create a beautiful um, guide that's hosted by our state library where people can read about each one of those letters. So 
you know, I, I have to give credit where credit's due. Huge work. I'm happy and proud to have written the epilogue for that text. And um, there's a CD for those people who still actually play CDs. It's very retro. But there's a CD because <laughs> really, really amazing liner notes as well. So, yeah, thank you for bringing, bringing up the, that project. Yeah, I need. I don't know how I missed this, but I didn't know it was currently out. I thought it was like on the way. So oh, now yeah. that it's out, like I'm gonna definitely buy it as soon as possible. It's been <laughs> out for a little while, um, but um, I think it's probably having a, a resurgence. That perhaps that's why it's on your radar again. Yeah, that is so exciting. Um, my final question. Uh, <laughs> so we're talking, you know. I, I actually wanted to interview you during cancer season because <laughs> I know you're a cancer, um, but I was a, a very busy during that time and moving and graduating and all the things. Uh, but we are talking during Libra season, and today is also a very special day. It is Courtney Reed Eaton's birthday, um, a very important person to the three of us. <laughs> so I'm glad uh, that we're all gathered here today to talk. <laughs> 